having the joint service and seeing all of us together. It is truly a blessing. You may have noticed from our reading that we have moved from the very beginning of Matthew to the very end of Matthew. We spent the last few weeks looking at the birth of Jesus, and this week, this Sunday, we are looking at his final moments with his disciples. So we have jumped all the way to the end of his life. The passage we're going to be looking at is literally the final words he says before he goes to ascend back to his heavenly throne. And I've brought us to this place for a very special reason, because Christmas is over. We have eaten, we have had our gifts, and now we're looking forward to the next year, the New Year's coming, 2020 is here, seems crazy. But we're all setting goals, and we're making resolutions for this coming year. And this morning, I want us to consider together a kind of a joint resolution, a joint goal that each of us can be working toward together. And this is a resolution that Jesus gives to his disciples. And we as disciples later in time, it is a resolution that he gives to us too. This is a resolution that is just as much ours today as it was theirs then. And they come from Jesus' last words in Matthew's gospel. And last words are important to listen to. Because they are last words. When Jesus gives his last words, I mean, this is the man, this is the Son of God who came, who lived the perfect sinless life, who died for our sins and rose to the grave. And these are his last words. So we should listen carefully. We should lean in. Like someone, like as if someone close to us were breathing their last words. We should lean in and we should set aside every distraction so that we make sure to understand these last words to us. Because last words are powerful. They hold our attention. When we hear last words, whether on something on Facebook or in real life, they hold our attention. They're powerful. Last words can change the very way we live our lives. George Harrison, the famous guitar player for the Beatles, said in his last moments, love one another. It was a simple yet powerful phrase that he gave, a powerful call he gave to humanity. Another one, Nathan Hale who was an American officer and spy in the Revolutionary War, said just before his execution in 1776, he said, I only regret that I have but one life to lose for my country. Last words have the power to inspire us to change how we live because they reflect almost the entire person and what they want us to take from them, the most important thing. So when someone says their last words, we need to listen. But when Jesus says his last words, we need to listen extra carefully. And what does Jesus say then? Well, he gathers his disciples to him in Galilee, and he says, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them and teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. He gives his disciples a joint resolution. He gives them a goal to work toward for the rest of their life, a goal for them to pursue together, and that is make disciples. And this is yours and my resolution too, make disciples. Well, what does it mean to make a disciple? Because already that question forms in our mind. What does that mean? Does it mean to invite people to church? Does it mean to be kind and generous to people, to treat people right? Does it mean to share Bible verses and Christian memes on Facebook? It can involve and should involve some of those things. But discipleship church is far more. Jesus has something far bigger in mind here than just those things, though those things are good and things we should do. The word disciple means follower. You and I are called to go out. Jesus is saying go out and don't just make people who attend church. 
Don't just make people who convert, but make followers of me like you are. Go out and make followers. You and I are called to go out and find those who do not follow Jesus and make them followers of Jesus. And there are four pieces to Jesus' command. The first part is, number one, go. We are called to go out into our city, our county, our state, all nations, Jesus says. And not just go, not just go and be nice, but go and, number two, make disciples, make followers. Find those who are following the world who do not know Jesus and lead them to follow Jesus. So that's number two. And then number three, Jesus says baptizing them. We are to go find people and lead them into faith and lead them into baptism, to point them to the one who is salvation, Jesus. And then last he says, teaching all that I have commanded. So we are called not just to go and find and bring people into the church, but we are called to go and find and lead people to salvation and then teach them the way, the way that we see Jesus live in the Bible. And we'll talk more about what this teaching looks like here in a minute. But now, knowing those four things, what Jesus means when he says go and make disciples, let me ask a question. How many of us made a disciple in 2019? Think through this year. Don't raise your hand. Reflect how many of us made disciples in 2019, knowing that it means going, making followers, leading them to baptism, and teaching them the way of the Lord? My guess is that some of us, when I asked that question, would say, yes, I did. I did make disciples in 2019. Some of us might say, no. I think a great deal of us might have some confusion, might kind of have some wonder as to, did I make disciples in 2019? I mean, I invited people to church. I taught this my one friend about Jesus that one time have I been making disciples there might be some confusion that comes to mind when I ask that question Francis Chan who's a noted pastor teacher author he's noted this confusion that can occur among Christians today and he writes in his book multiply great book he writes this quote he says we have moved so far away from Jesus's command that many Christians don't have a frame of reference for what disciple-making look like. And what Francis Chan is saying is he's saying that many Christians and churches have unintentionally strayed from Jesus' command to make disciples by replacing his command to make disciples with things like conversion and church attendance. We tend to think of those things as making disciples. And as a result, a lot of us have kind of lost this framework. Some of us have. And so we might struggle to understand what does it actually mean to go and make disciples with our life. We struggle to understand, or we limit Jesus' command to go and disciples to just go and be nice, go and bring people to church, go and convert people. This morning, I want us to see that discipleship is so much greater. But first, I want us to acknowledge three reasons why we might be tempted to not go and make disciples, because Jesus addresses these three reasons in this passage this morning because we are tempted to not go and make disciples number one the first reason we give for not making disciples is this number one i am a failure sam when it comes to faith i am a failure i don't read my bible i don't give i don't share my faith i struggle to love my wife my i'm consumed with greed or pride or lust how can i possibly make disciples when i don't even feel like i can approach god Maybe that resonates with you this morning. You hear this call to go and make disciples, but you feel like I am too much of a spiritual failure to do that. 
Well, if that is you hear this, I think the, the, the disciples shared some of those same feelings. In our passage, Jesus gathers his disciples to him in Galilee, but this is significant because in Matthew's gospel, this is the first time they are seeing him, meeting with him, since the Garden of Gethsemane. And we know what happens in the Garden of Gethsemane. In the Garden, Jesus is there, he's praying, his disciples are with him. They come, they arrest Jesus, they take Jesus away. And in that moment when Jesus' disciples should have stood by him, they fled. It says they scattered. They ran away from him. They abandoned him. So in their minds, the last time they were with Jesus, when Jesus needed them, they abandoned him. And now they're going to meet with him. He has called them. And of course they know he's risen at this point, so they're happy, they're joyful, but I can't help but feel that they must have also been feeling things like worry. Will Jesus still want us after we left him? Maybe even fear. Is Jesus going to punish us? Is he, go is he still going, is he going to be angry? Even sadness. How could we have done that to Jesus, the one that we love and who loves us? We get to verse 18. It says, Jesus came. Jesus doesn't withhold his presence. He comes to them, and he says, in verse 18, he says, Jesus came and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciple. What Jesus says, in effect, is this. He says, I am your king. I have all authority in heaven and on earth. I have authority over the good things in your life. I have authority over your sin, your failures. By my death and resurrection, I have chosen to forgive your sins, your failures. So do not worry about your failures, disciples. I have all authority. Go and make disciples. Maybe as you reflect back on this year, you recognize all the spiritual failures that happened. Maybe it was a year of failures for you, and if this is you, hear the words of Jesus. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. You are forgiven. Jesus has the authority to forgive any spiritual failure and free you from any guilt or shame that you might have. Jesus does not want you to dwell there. He wants you to go and make disciples. I love how he takes the disciples and he replaces their possible, you know, the, like the sense of failure, and he says, no, go and make disciples. God uses spiritual failures to make disciples. If you look ahead to the book of Acts, Saul one of the greatest persecutors of the church. Saul is persecuting the church. He's dragging Christians out of their homes. He's throwing them in jail. He's having them killed. He's denying Jesus. There's no, less, there's no candidate less likely to be a disciple. But when God sends Ananias to Saul, Saul is converted, and Saul becomes one of the greatest disciple makers, one of the greatest disciples we know in Scripture. God makes a persecutor of the church into a builder of the church. And God can use any failure that we might have. He can free us from that and use us to make disciples. So that's the first reason we get for not making disciples. I'm a failure. The second reason is this. I am inadequate. Jesus commands us, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them and teaching them to observe. And I think that word teaching might make us nervous. Teaching them all that I have commanded you. Because you might, say or say, you might think or say, wait, hold on, Sam. I like what you're saying. I support making disciples, but I am not a teacher. You have the degree. How about you teach and I'll invite people to church? Does that sound good? Well, I appreciate the thought and the compliment that I gave myself. <laughs> but that's not what Jesus says. Jesus goes to his disciples and say, you go. He, he comes to us and he says, you go 
and you teach people how to live how I have commanded. Me and that too, but all of us. And that can make us nervous, so much nervous that we think, oh, well, well, I need a teacher. I need someone to teach me. Well, you were right, and you have one. We go to verse 20. We read this. Jesus says, he gives his commission, and maybe the disciples were looking a little nervous at what Jesus said, because he says, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. He's saying that, look, disciples, just as I'm standing in front of you right now, I will stand next to you as you go and make disciples. And we learn this in the Gospel of John, John chapter 14. We learn that God sends his spirit with us as we go to make disciples, to help us, to teach us, and to teach others through us. And in 2 Timothy 3, we, we, we learn that, you know, this book that we hold, this Bible is God's word to us to teach others. So Jesus does not leave us alone. We are right to believe that we ourselves are inadequate because we have a sin problem. We struggle to live and honor God with our lives. However, this is not an excuse for us to not make disciples because as Jesus says, he is with us, standing with us. While we may be inadequate with him, we are adequate with him in us because he is adequate. So that's the second reason I am inadequate. The third reason we give for not making disciples is this, and this is probably the most common reason we give. I am too busy. We live in a culture that consumes our time, and as a result, our time gets consumed, and it's so easy to read the, uh, the instruction, go and make disciples, and think, I don't need to make disciples. I go to church. I read my Bible. I help out a couple service projects. I do enough. I don't need to go make disciples. But what we have to see here is that Jesus is not making a suggestion. You know, you read the Bible, there's statements that Jesus makes, I am the Son of God, but then there's commands. Go and make disciples. This is a command from the mouth of our Lord Jesus Christ, the one who has all authority in heaven and on earth. We cannot ignore it. Jesus is, in effect, saying, if you do not have the time, make the time. Think of it like this, parents in the room. When a parent tells their child to do something, they're not making a suggestion, right, parents? <laughs> you are telling them, do this. Hey, you're not, you're not saying, hey, it might be good if you don't touch the hot oven. No, you're saying, don't touch the oven. I love how Jesus approaches the disciples. He's gentle at first. He he addresses their and our insecurities. He's assuring them, you are, with, with me, you can make disciples. And I will use your failures. I will redeem them, and you, though you struggle, I will work through you. But then he also comes to us, and he's firm. And he says, this is your job. This is your responsibility. He makes sure to address our tendency to scatter when it comes to obedience. I go back to the Garden of Gethsemane when Jesus was arrested his disciples, when Jesus needed them to be obedient in that moment, they scattered. They had been following him, but when it came to obedience, they scattered. And I think we experience that same tendency to scatter when it comes to making disciples. We, are t we get tempted to come and celebrate Christmas and receive the good news of our Savior being born with hope and joy and love and peace and all these good things. But then when we come to the end of Jesus' life and Jesus says, go and make disciples, we scatter because it requires obedience. The message this morning is this. Christmas is over, but God is still with us. 
And he is calling us to go and make disciples. These are his last words to his disciples and to us as well. So how then do we make disciples? Because you might be thinking, everything you've said, Sam, is good, but how do I actually do this? And as Francis Chan said at the beginning, we might struggle to understand, okay, I'm supposed to make disciples. How do I do that? We need a frame of reference. So that's where we're going to spend the rest of our time. And to help us to begin to construct this framework for making disciples in the year 2020, I want to share from my own experience. In college, I was discipled by a man, Jeremy. Jeremy worked at Washita where I was going to school. Uh, he and I attended the same church. He and his wife uh, hosted a small group on Washita's campus in their home. They lived in a dorm with 200 freshman boys. You can imagine how that went. Um, they, I'll get to that in a second. But uh, we... He and Jeremy and I, our relationship grew at church. He invited me to a small group, and for a while, that was where our relationship was. We, we came to, I came to small group, got to know Jeremy through that, and that's where our relationship began. And at first, that was all it was. I came weekly to his home. But then, over time, our relationship grew. Jeremy began reaching out to me. We began meeting in between classes. We began meeting on weekends, coffee, disc golf. We began... Um, I began just being at their home, invited to their home, and just being with their family, no special occasion. And to be honest, I do not remember if there was a time, Jeremy, if you're watching this, I'm sorry, uh, if there was a time that we opened a Bible and studied it outside of small group, I don't remember. But I'll tell you what I do remember from my time with Jeremy. I remember observing how a Christian man should love and serve his wife. As I got to watch, as I was just there in their home, as I got to watch him and his wife interact and watch him love and serve her. I remember observing how a Christian man should father his children as I got to be a part of their family and get to know his kids. I remember observing how a Christian should love their neighbor as they loved and welcomed 100 to 200 freshman boys into their home. They would just come and go, and I'd be there, and they welcomed them into their home. And I remember observing how a Christian man handles things like heartbreak and struggle and trial. Because as I was walking through these things, they were walking through these things with me. I share this story to make three points for us about discipleship. Number one, discipleship is an invitation. When you choose to disciple someone, you are inviting them into your life. Jesus sought out 12 men to follow him. He grabbed 12 men. He invited them to walk with him in life. Like Jeremy sought me out, with an invitation to his home. Jesus sought out the disciples. So I want you to see that discipleship is not just Bible study. Sometimes we talk about discipleship and we have this image in our mind of sitting down with someone for four hours and going through a catechism for four hours. And it's just like, what in the world? No. Discipleship does include Bible study, but discipleship is so much more. It is inviting someone into your life. Jesus ministered on earth for three years. His disciples traveled on the ultimate road trip with him for three years. Did they hear his teaching? Of course, he taught them. But more so, they witnessed his way of life. They witnessed him step away to go be with God, to have quiet time. They witnessed him love people. They witnessed him handle people who were difficult. They witnessed him in his relationship with God. So discipleship is not just teaching with words. It is showing faith to someone. It is inviting someone into your life and showing the way to live. So invite someone into your life in 2020. This will look different for each one of you because each one of us, our lives are different. For example, if you're an outdoorsman of any sort, 
hunter, fisher, hiker, kayaker, whatever you are, discipleship could look like inviting that person who you know needs to follow Jesus along with you, building that relationship on a regular basis and bringing Jesus into the conversation when, it, when it's possible. Or if you're a farmer and you spend a lot of time out in the fields or doing work on your farm, it could look like inviting your disciple to work with you and building that relationship and then investing in them, showing them the way to live. It could look like inviting your coworker and his or her family to your home for dinner and building a relationship that way. And on a bigger scale, discipleship could look like being a foster parent or adopting and inviting a child into your home. Discipleship is an invitation. That's the first point. And the second way to, second thing to think about when we apply this is this. Discipleship is intentional. It doesn't happen accidentally. Jesus intentionally called his disciples to follow him. Many people followed him in the Gospels. If you read through the Gospels, you see crowds following Jesus. But Jesus chose 12. And you would think, why would the Son of God not just disciple everyone? Well, he chose 12 because he's setting an example for us. Discipleship is an intentional relationship. It's a relationship we work toward. Like Jeremy, Jeremy, my discipler, and I built a relationship over time. It's like dating. If you want to date, you don't sit at home and wait for Mr. or Mrs. Wright to show up on your doorstep. No, you go out and you date. Or in our context, you make your online dating profile, whichever one you do. But you go out, you take initiative, you, you are intentional with it to build that relationship and find it. So this is something that we build and maintain. And those of us with significant relationships know that, you know, that kind of relationship takes a lot of time and a lot of energy. And we might be tempted to think, oh, that's too much time and energy, but Robert Coleman addresses this. Robert Coleman is an author and professor at Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary. He wrote a great book called The Master Plan of Evangelism, just looking at Jesus and how he discipled. And in his book, he says this. He says, if Jesus, the Son of God, found it necessary to stay almost constantly with his few disciples for three years, and even one of them was lost, Judas, how can a church expect to do this job on an assembly line basis a few days out of the year? Here's what Coleman is saying. He's saying, if Jesus spent constant time with his disciples, then we must too. We cannot expect to make disciples like Jesus did by spending a few minutes each week with someone on Sunday morning. Church is, of course, a vital and indispensable part of disciple-making. But deep relationships are needed that extend beyond these walls and into each of your lives. If you want to make disciples, we have to have relationships that go beyond this building. And this is why discipleship is an intentional invitation. You are inviting someone into your life, not just on Sunday morning, but into your life. And that way, that person doesn't just see what it means to follow Jesus on Sunday morning. They get to see what it means to follow Jesus on Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday and when hard times come and when times are good and when you're struggling. Jesus did not meet his disciples once a week. He invited them into his life every day. And so we might be tempted to think, oh, Sam, that's a huge time commitment, energy commitment. Well, yes, and this is where we have to return to the fact that Jesus is commanding this. Go and make disciples. And if we are not making disciples, then we are, in fact, living contrary to the will of God. So discipleship is a task that we are called to do, and it is a big one. But it is also a blessing we are called to receive. 
Point number three, discipleship is for you. Everyone in this room should be being discipled. Back to Francis Chan, who I quoted at the beginning. He has another great quote in his book, Multiply. He writes, we never finish the discipleship process. It's much like raising a child. Though there comes a day when she is ready to be on her own, the relationship doesn't end. The friendship continues, and there will always be times when guidance and encouragement are still needed. So Chan is saying that like a child matures into an adult and becomes more independent, a new Christian matures from a baby in the faith to an adult. And as an infant in the faith, we need more discipleship. We need guidance. We need to be, we need someone to spoon feed us and teach us the way to live as Christians. But as we mature in the faith, we become more independent. And we learn how to chew and talk and walk. And we learn how to pray and read our Bible and all these different things. We become more independent. But what Chan is saying is we never reach a place where we don't need to be being discipled. We need someone pouring into us, no matter how old we are, no matter what stage of life we're in. And it's true. You think about this. Julie and I, we're on our own now. We're independent of our parents. So they're not, we're not relying on them day by day anymore. But things come up. For example, we're planning on buying a car. So we're calling our parents and asking for wisdom and advice. It's the same way in our Christian journey. We need the wisdom and knowledge of Christians who are farther along in the faith than us. So we need another Christian pouring into us. And we also need our primary discipler. Jesus. You can almost think of discipleship like a bucket. I love this analogy. I call it the bucket analogy. Very original. You can think of discipleship like a bucket. You are a bucket, and you are a bucket that is being filled up and poured out. We need to be being filled up regularly if we are to make disciples so that we can pour out into another disciple. We fill our bucket up by walking with Jesus, by receiving the good news of the gospel day by day, walking with him, and by being poured into by someone else. Someone pouring love and truth and good, good news into us. And then with our bucket full, we go to someone else and we pour it into our disciple. And then we continually get poured into and we pour out, poured into, pour out. But that means we need to be sure of two things. We need to be sure that our bucket is being filled up. And maybe you're here this morning and this is where you're at. Your bucket is empty. Spiritually, you feel dry. You feel like you have nothing to give. And if that is where you're at, then it is time to start walking with Jesus again. It is time for you to start following God again. And if you don't know how to start that, then find someone to disciple you. Find someone to show you the way. So we need to be sure that our bucket is being filled up, but we also need to be sure that our bucket is being poured out because some of us, we have the temptation to get excited, start reading books, and gain all this knowledge and wisdom, and our bucket is full, and we're following Jesus, and it's great, but the water is just spilling out, and it's being wasted, and it's hitting the floor. And it's time to start pouring your bucket out into a disciple who needs it. This is for those of us who've been in the faith a long time. And the good news is that here at Fellowship, there's plenty of opportunities to pour your bucket out. As we wrap, here, wrap up here, I want to give you some like immediate steps, steps you can take as this year wraps up, 2020. Three little steps. Number one, look around you for this. You know, you don't have to go up to someone in the grocery store and say, hi, I'd like to disciple you. That probably won't work. You might get in trouble. Look around you. Who in your life is not following Jesus? Is it a neighbor, a friend, a family member? If you're a parent, you have a special opportunity. Your little disciples are right in front of you, your kids. 
and you are their discipler. Or if you're a coach, you have a team. Or if you're a teacher, you have students. How can you invite them into your life? Find a disciple. And here at Fellowship, we have a wonderful kids' ministry. We, with the staff, we always talk about in staff meeting, we, we were kind of always like, you know, are you, do we know that our largest demographic is kids in our church? Like the largest demographic in our church is kids. On Wednesday nights, we have 40 students that gather together. There's, we have men's ministries and women's ministries, and we need to be discipling one another. There are so many you could disciple in our church. We need older men discipling younger men. We need older women discipling younger women. We need older students in youth ministry discipling the younger ones. So find a ministry to serve in. Go grab a serve card back to the welcome desk and think, who, could, who would I want to disciple? Where could I be? start pouring my bucket out into? So find a disciple. Step number two, find a person to disciple you. Don't start discipling someone without finding someone to disciple you as well. And the best way to do this is just ask. Recently, a man came to me, and he asked to be dis- and he asked for if we could help the church, if we could help s- find him someone to disciple him. And we did. We connected him with another man, and they've had a good relationship, and it has been so good for both of them. We can and want to do that. Or if that's just something that you're uncomfortable with, Go and join a small group. Commit to it and plug in with a group of people who are going to build you up and encourage you and pour their buckets into you so that you can pour your bucket out. And last but not least, utilize your resources. Making disciples, I like to compare it to riding a bike. You might be wobbly at first. You might fall off. You might need help. And even those who've been making disciples for long periods of time need help. So use the resources you have, which is your small group, your church, your friends in the faith. We have a pastoral library that you can pull from. If you have advice, if you need advice in making disciples, come to us. We want to help you with that. As we conclude, I want to address a question that might be on some of our minds. The question is, Sam, is this really how we're supposed to to spread the good news? By making disciples one-on-one, because, you know, we tend to want results, we, you know, and we want, we want the biggest result for the shortest amount of time. And this may seem like a lot of effort for seemingly meager results, when we might even think like, should we not just add another service or do more community outreach or improve our kids' ministry or this or this or this? And those things have their place. I'm not denying any of those. But we have to remember that Jesus, the Son of God, chose 12 men. And those 12 men, 11 after Judas, by his investment in them over three years, building relationships, those 11 men changed the world for Jesus. If we want to affect culture, if we want to affect our nation and the world, this is how we do it, through discipleship. Christmas is over, but God is still with us, and he is calling you and I and all of us to go and make disciples. Christ has come, Christ will come again, but in the meantime, Christ is calling us. How will you respond in 2020? Let us pray. Father God, thank you for this morning. Father, thank you for this church. Thank you for this incredible family of God, Lord, that I know is doing so much for you in this town. Father, I pray that you would show each of us those that we need to make disciples, those that we need to reach out to, those that are already in our lives. Father, I pray that we would be bold and follow your command. 
that we would not make excuses, that we would trust your presence and your forgiveness, and that we would make disciples, that we would be bold in doing so. Father, we thank you for your word, how it, it just brings us to this place of obedience where we see what we have to do. Father, above all, we thank you that you came and made us a disciple. You saw us when we were following the world and you came and you grabbed us and you forgave us and you gave us life. You forgave our sins. You came and dwelt in our life. And Father, I pray that we would go and dwell in others and invite others to dwell in our lives and disciple them like you disciple us. In your name we pray, amen.